a few years ago, Norman Hamilton got some kind of sociological surveying done in Belfast, and they came up with the not surprising result that most people who who try to begin to come to church or who come occasionally to church find the sermon the worst bit. With a really off-putting, unpleasant, boring bit. So the preacher lives with that perception, uh, that image problem that the sermon has. Um, A few weeks ago I was thought-provoked in the opposite direction. Uh, An old friend of mine from university days who remains uh, a convinced atheist, Uh, but who occasionally over the years has had to go to church because his wife goes and their boys went to BB and so on. And he said to me, the only bit I kind of enjoyed in a service when I had to go was the sermon. He said, the rest of it, I could take it or leave it, but I always looked forward to the sermon. Something to, to think about and get my teeth into, see whether the guy or the girl was persuading me in any way or it was well put together. He said, in fact, I used to say to my wife, is there going to be a sermon at the the service? Because if there's not, I'm not going. So that's the other side of the story about the sermon. Um, Another way of looking at it is that someone, for once, someone speaks to you, to you, directly about your spiritual state about your Christian life, about the values by which you are living your life, about the way you're living your life. And maybe in the present day world, that's uh, an almost unique thing to happen. Anyway, since I've talked about sermons, let, let let me give you one now. I would like to talk about communion. As most of you know, for decades and possibly for centuries, there was a massive and tragic misunderstanding about the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. It arose from the King James translation of First Corinthians chapter 11 verses 27 and 28 Wherefore whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord Verse 29, for he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself. Wow. And generations of preachers leathered into that. And taught people that if there was any sin whatever in their lives, from having a wee drink in the previous six months or whatever, or going to a dance, or 
blah, 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 whatever, whatever. And generations, countless souls, either stayed away from communion, never became full members of their church, missed out on the on the encouragement of the sacrament, missed out on the means of grace, as Presbyterian theology says it is. When, in fact, the meaning is completely different from that, the King James translators were not at fault in any way. They thought the context makes perfectly clear what the apostle is talking about here. Five, five verses previously, Paul is saying that in Corinth, when the Christians get together for the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, they have it as part of, a, of an, an ordinary common meal. The rich people are, are gorging themselves on fine food and getting drunk and paying no attention to the poor people who are there and paying no attention to the actual observing the Lord's Supper, the, the bread and wine as a memorial of Jesus' death. And when Paul is talking about doing it, taking the Lord's Supper unworthily, that's what he's referring to. He's not remotely thinking about whether anyone is worthy to come to the Lord's table because we're not. None of us are. Every modern translation, to the best of my knowledge, you know, does the belt and braces bit and translates unworthily as in whoever received the bread and wine in an unworthy manner, making it crystal clear that it's referring back to this business of getting drunk and so on, not, not thinking about the meaning of it at all that's being referred to. But so much damage has been done in terms of, as I say, people missing out, in terms of many believers coming to communion with a sense of foreboding and fear, in terms, because of the way human sin is in us, the way others would have a sense of self-righteousness. Almost as bad on the other side, isn't it? We have to think of the words of Jesus. There is none good but God. None of us is worthy to come to the Lord's table. Or First John, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Or one of Jesus' parables, remember the servants say to the master, uh, when we have done all we can, we are unworthy servants. And that's what you and I always say to God, to our master.
Of course, we are to make earnest efforts, each one of us, to change. We are to make earnest efforts to become more and more the people wants us, God wants us to be. We are to do battle against our sins. But that battle against sin in your life is in the Bible never linked in some kind of threatening way to taking communion. Never. So sad that that error was made for so long. In fact, our our strict Presbyterian tradition in my reading tends to be to emphasize welcoming people to the Lord's <clears throat> to the Lord's table. We we sometimes think that the old Presbyterians in the sixteen hundreds were were a dour, severe, stern bunch that you wouldn't invite round to your house or if you're hoping for a joyful party some night. I'm not sure about that. But listen to the to the larger catechism. Those of you who are of a certain age knew the shorter catechism. And a couple of generations before that they worked hard on the larger catechism. Which takes up about you know three quarters of the book. The shorter catechism is just a wee bit at the end. Um, the larger catechism here is, do you agree with me that this is more encouraging people to come to the Lord's table rather than driving them away or scaring them away? May one who doubteth of his being in Christ come to the Lord's Supper. One who doubteth of his being in Christ or of his due preparation to the sacrament, may have true interest in Christ, though he be not yet assured thereof, and in God's account hath it, if he be duly affected with the apprehension of the want of it, and unfeignedly desires to be found in Christ, and to depart from iniquity. In which case... Because promises are made, and this sacrament is appointed for the relief even of weak and doubting Christians. He is to bewail his unbelief and labor to have his doubts resolved, and so doing, he may and ought to come to the Lord's table, that he may be further strengthened. I think that's great stuff. About the 1640s, the Westminster Divines, a bunch of English theologians um, with about six Scottish commissioners working alongside them. So I believe our tradition would welcome rather than scare people away from the Lord's Supper. And it's so sad that uh, things went the other way. I suppose tied into this point, in a way, 
is the question as to whether the Lord's Supper is solemn or joyful, or where the balance lies between those two. I'm sure we would all agree it has to have a bit of joy and a bit of solemnity in there, but where does the balance lie? I suspect we have drifted too much in the direction of the solemn and have not concentrated enough on the joy. In all our Presbyterian hymn books, there is this 17th century German Protestant communion hymn. And it's virtually all joy. Listen to a bit of it. First verse. This is, this is introduction to the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. <clears throat> Deck thyself, my soul, with gladness. Leave the gloomy haunts of sadness. Come into the daylight's splendor. There with joy thy praises render unto him whose grace unbounded hath this wondrous banquet founded. High o'er all the heavens he reigneth, yet to dwell with thee he reigneth. Sun who all my life dost brighten, light who dost my soul enlighten. Joy the sweetest man e'er knoweth, found whence all my being floweth. Jesus, bread of life, I pray thee, let me gladly here obey thee, never to, never to my hurt invited. Be thy love with love requited. Lord, from this banquet let me measure, Lord, how vast and deep its treasure. Hmm. And if I would go back to another answer in the larger catechism, in it, as it talks about what is required of us while we are receiving a sacrament, they use the word rejoice. I, I lay it all on you because it's great stuff. I apologize for the ancient language, but it doesn't seem to me to be a completely impossible to understand for 21st century people. What is required of them that receive the sacrament of the Lord's Supper in the time of the administration of it? It is required of them that receive the sacrament of the Lord's Supper that with all holy reverence and attention. Okay, not solemn, I suppose, concentrating on something which is important, with all holy reverence and attention, they wait upon God in that ordinance. Diligently observe the sacramental elements and actions. Heedfully discern the Lord's body. And affectionately meditate on his death and sufferings. And thereby stir up themselves to a vigorous exercise of their graces in judging themselves and sorrowing for sin, in earnest hungering and thirsting after Christ, feeding on him by faith, receiving of his fullness, 
trusting in his merits, rejoicing in his love, giving thanks for his grace, in renewing of their covenant with God, and love to all the saints. So that's one or two things for you to do while you're receiving the sacrament of the Lord's Supper this morning. But I hope you take the, the, the point that there's a positive and joyful emphasis in there. Of course, we are sad as we think about Jesus' death on the cross, which is vividly portrayed in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. But Jesus, in his words, insisted upon that it was the new covenant in his blood. That a new covenant is being introduced and offered and launched. And that is the focus of our joy and our rejoicing in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. We rejoice in the new covenant, the wonderful why don't I read the new covenant words from Jeremiah, which Jesus was referring to. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them out of, by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them. This is the covenant <clears throat> This is the covenant that I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. In the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, that is the new covenant that we rejoice in. Amen. <clears throat>